It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. We've done a number of shows about online privacy and web tracking, what's going on behind your browser as you cruise around. And I would consider myself relatively aware of the way that we're being tracked online and offline. But a recent study kind of blew my mind when it came to describing the scope and depth and, frankly, the sinister cleverness of a lot of the more cutting-edge tracking techniques. The study was done by a team at Princeton University. One of its head researchers is Arvind Narayanan. He recently came in to discuss his work, and I started by asking him what exactly was new in this work. If many people at this point are like me or similar to me and that they know that they're being tracked or maybe they aren't surprised when they search for one thing on one site and they start seeing ads for that same thing on another site, I asked Arvind what now counts as cutting edge. Here he is. So we're certainly not the first to say in our research project at Princeton that online tracking is going on or that this is leading to targeted advertisements. All of that is well known. There have been a lot of press reporting about it and research about it. But I think some of the new things that we're finding is how technologically sophisticated this online tracking is becoming. How quickly these tracking methodologies are adapting in order to take advantage of, in a lot of ways, misuse new features that get put into web browsers and into web standards. New features that are designed for security or just new features in general because browsers are always just releasing updates and trying to get better and so forth? New features in general, new features that are intended to enable a better video experience, Mm -hmm. for example. But the uh, companies involved in tracking and advertising are finding ways to use them in completely unintended ways. Yeah, And this is, in fact, freaking out the people who develop web standards. <laughs> and there's a big conversation going on in that world about how do we design new features that cannot be abused in this manner. Interesting. So it's like this. It's like a game of cat and mouse. I mean, when reading about your research, it really does feel that way. It's absolutely a game of cat and mouse. There's another game of cat and mouse going on in ad blocking. There's also a game of cat and mouse in a, in a very related sense going on in online tracking and people trying to stop this online tracking. So tell me about your, your research, and then we'll get into some specific examples of the kind of tracking that's, that's happening. You looked at a kind of enormous number of, of sites, right? I, I'm trying to find the number in front of me, but I mean, you looked at just like a comprehensive look at the web, basically. It was right? one million sites. That's a lot of sites. Yeah, it is a lot of sites. And that was one of the, our fundamental motivations for doing this work. Because what's happened in the past is some researcher will come in and find a privacy violation. They'll find a specific type of tracking going on on a particular site or a small number of sites. And then there might be a press article about it. And people will get upset. And oftentimes, even the people who are publishers and people operating these sites will come out and say, wait a minute, we didn't know this was happening on our sites. This is a third party, Mm -hmm. and we're going to come back to this term third party on our site that's doing this. And so people get upset. And then what happens is temporarily that particular instance of tracking stops. But of course, it doesn't make a dent on this overall tracking ecosystem, right? This constant surveillance of our online activities that's going on, and things kind of get back to where they are. So why was it important for you to feel like you needed to, to look at a million sites? Right, because we wanted to get basically a complete picture of all the online tracking that's going on. Because we had found out from our past work that oftentimes what happens is, like I was saying earlier, one of these 
new technologies gets abused for tracking. What's going to happen is some site out in the long tail, you know, out in the weeds and one of the dark corners of the web is going to experiment with it. They're going to get good results. They're going to say, oh, this works really well for tracking. They're going to put out some open source code out there for other companies to potentially look at and start using. And then next thing you know, a major website has uh, has deployed it, and it's going to be a major third party. We're coming back to the, that term now. So a third party is basically an entity that's different from the site that you're trying to visit, right? It's a tracker or an advertising mm-hmm. ent- entity that's embedded on that page, somebody you might not even be aware of being on the page, but they're going to deploy it. And all of a sudden, 5%, 10% of all of the sites that you visit have this really sneaky tracking mechanism that you can't block or can't do anything about. And a third-party site that has developed a new way to track you through uh, you know, something that's new in your browser or whatever, they're, they're in it to, to make money, right? Of course, yeah. That's the motivation behind most of this uh, tracking that goes on, mostly for online advertising, but also lately for a few other purposes as well. You mentioned that maybe some site in the dark, you know, dark corner of the web will develop this originally and then share the code. Why would they share the code if it's ultimately about making money? I mean, what's the motivation for someone who figures out how to hack into, you know, the latest Chrome update to drop a tracker in there around their new video player or whatever and then share that information? So this is similar to the culture of uh, Silicon Valley that we see in general, not really specific to online tracking and advertising. A lot of companies are certainly in it to make money, but at the same time, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. And, uh, you know, tech being a growth industry, there are a lot of programmers out there who do want to uh, freely share their code. Uh, And so um, open source is a part of of online tracking as well. But even if you ignore open source for a second, there's certainly going to be a percolation of knowledge within the tracking ecosystem. So we found that in our past work, something happens somewhere that nobody is aware of, and then suddenly it becomes a mainstream thing and it's happening on every website that you visit. So we want to avoid that situation. We want to be able to bring this data to the public attention as soon as it happens, as soon as there is a new tracking method, so that we can have a debate about whether this is ethically okay, are there going to be defenses developed for people to be able to block this in their browser if they want to, and so on. So you did your census, if we can call it that, of a million <laughs> sites, right? Um, and what did you what did you find? And were there were there any anything that's that was being widely used that surprised you? For sure, one of the things that we wanted to do was, as I was saying, to try to see if there were tracking techniques that had never been known or observed in the wild before. And one of the surprising... It sounds like you're an ornithologist or something, but yeah, it's, it probably it, feels that way. Right? It, it, it feels a little bit like, you know, it's similar to a traditional scientist who's making discoveries about the natural world, but in our case, it's not the natural world, right? right? It's the artifacts of the tech industry, and we only need this whole research program because there is such a lack of transparency, at least in terms of consumer-facing transparency, companies not willing to tell you what what tracking methods they're using. Uh, So that was part of our motivation. Some of the things that we found were certainly very surprising. We found that there were a couple of trackers out there. It's still not quite mainstream, but there were a couple of trackers out there that were looking at your battery status Mm -hmm. to try to track you using that information. Meaning if they can ID that you 
are at 11% in your battery status, and then you go to a different site and someone is showing 11%, they can probably infer that it's still you? Roughly, yes. And there's, it's still not fully clear how they're using this information. But there was a paper that came out last year that said, theoretically, here's how somebody could use this information. Let's say that you're visiting an innocuous site in your browser, in your laptop. And at the same time, you're using, let's say, a VPN or some other anonymizing technology to visit a site that you'd rather not be associated with. Now, what's going to happen if the same tracker, if the same hidden tracker is on mm. both of those sites, is that simultaneously, they're going to ping your browser, they're going to query your browser for its battery status, for your computer's battery status. And in both cases, it's going to say 11%. Not only that, but the longer that you stay on both of those sites, that number is going to change at the same rate. And the chance that that can happen accidentally for two different people, that not only is your battery status at the same level, but it's also discharging at the same rate. And also maybe you plug in your computer because right. it's getting too low. And that happens at the same instant, right? <laughs> the longer you're on the site, the chance of that happening by accident goes down exponentially. So they can link those two apparently anonymous visitors to each other. Even if they can't find your real name, they can put all of that information into a single dossier about you in order to better target ads. And, and this, I think, is a good chance to maybe do a little terminology here, right? Because I think a lot of people know what a cookie is, right? Which is basically it's dropped in your browser, and then as your browser moves around, the cookie follows you, and, and it's um, kind of attached to you as you move around, right? right? Uh, correct me when I start to get things wrong, which will probably be the beginning of this next sentence. Uh, there's this now, this notion which I think is what you're getting at, fingerprinting, which is not actively attaching something to you, but picking up on trends and unique identifiers in your behavior that is just kind of there. It's not like they've planted something. You're exactly right. And in fact, in the ad tech industry, cookies have gradually being uh, shunted in favor of fingerprinting over uh, the last several years. And the reason that fingerprinting is so effective is that even if you have a device that you think is identical to the device of the person next to you, right? There are going to be a number of differences in the behavior of your browser, of your computer. The set of fonts that you've got installed in your browser could be different from the other person. The precise version number of the browser could be different. Or, like as we were saying, your battery status could be different from the battery status of the person sitting next to you or anybody else in the world. And it turns out that if you put all of these pieces of information together a unique or nearly unique picture of the behavior of your device emerges. That's going to be relatively stable over time. And that enables these companies to recognize you when you come back. But how does it enable them to recognize you when you come back if all of those, you know, my fingerprint, my actual fingerprint doesn't change from today to tomorrow, but my battery status will change. All those other things potentially could change between today and tomorrow. So how do they know that it's still you? So the battery status is actually the only exception to that general principle. And that was the reason I said we're still right, right. figuring out exactly how to Because all the other things in my browser are probably still the same. As right. Let's say you've got 41 fonts installed on your browser today. You come back in a week, maybe you have 43 fonts installed, but 41 of those are going to be the same as what they saw a week ago, and it changes slowly enough that statistically you can have a high degree of confidence. And so in the industry, they call these things statistical IDs. Mm -hmm. It's not as certain as putting a cookie on your browser, but you can derive a very high degree of confidence. We'll get back to that conversation in a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsor. 
What's the Point is brought to you by Me Undies. You wear underwear every day, at least most of us do. Well, it's time to try something better. Me Undies has created the world's most comfortable underwear with a blend of fabric that is three times softer than cotton. Life feels better in Me Undies. When you feel awesome from the inside out, you look awesome from the outside in. Think about it. MeUndies is made from Modal, a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. They have tons of colors and patterns from classic to bold to adventurous, and MeUndies is the only brand that has matching pairs for men and women. The world may not know you're matching, but you will. All orders from MeUndies in the U.S. and Canada ship for free, and if you don't love your first pair, though you probably will, MeUndies will pay you back and you can keep it for free. No questions asked. Trust me, no one is going to ask you too many questions about that. For a limited time, MeUndies is offering you 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash WTP for What's the Point. If you don't love your first pair, it's free. You have no excuse. Try it right now. Make sure to go to MeUndies.com slash WTP. Get 20% off MeUndies.com slash WTP so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. So what are some of the other examples of these ideas? You mentioned the fonts. You mentioned battery status. One of my favorite ones is how big your browser window is at any given moment. And the reason <laughs> I'm like, I have to say, I have my computer in front of me. And like right. every time you mention right. one of these things, I look at my yeah, computer. Looking I'm like, nervously. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, none of us is immune to this. We're going to have a variety of tells in our computer and mm-hmm. our browser. And the reason that the size of your browser window can be a tell is because modern browsers, even if you close them and reopen them, unless you explicitly resize them, they're going to they're gonna remember how big they were the last time you used them, right? And so that information is going to remain stable over a period of, it depends on the person, but days or weeks or months or something like that. So what are the chances that someone else is going to have a window size of exactly 980 by you know 671, right? So you start putting that together with 10 other pieces of information, that's when it starts to get unique. So... As you've been describing this, I mean, you're smiling a little bit, and I've been smiling. People can probably hear it in in our voices that we're smiling a little bit and sort of in (laughs) awe of this. But obviously, there's an element of, and even after all these years, creepy is still probably the best word, you know, to use. I know that that's really loaded or whatever, but there's an element of creepiness here. So, like, how do you square that just as you, as a researcher, where you find, like, one of these really advanced techniques and you kind of have to admire it for its ingenuity, but then also realize what's at stake and why it's problematic and and so forth. Right, absolutely. You have to admire it. But, yeah, I do think it's important to talk about why this is problematic. There are a number of, you know, privacy and security concerns that uh, individuals shouldn't worry about, and we'll come back to that in a second. But what I do want to point out is that uh, the reason to me that this is really important and perhaps the, the primary thing that motivates me to do this research is that this world of pervasive surveillance that we're entering into, and I'm going to use that word surveillance Mm -hmm. very deliberately because it is surveillance, right? Because everything that we look at online and click on is getting stored in some database somewhere and saved for posterity permanently. And it's being data mined and various things are happening based on that. Targeted advertising is a a relatively innocuous example, but there are a variety of other things that uh, can and do happen. But the thing is, There is research showing that when people know they're being observed and tracked and surveilled, they change their behavior. We lose our intellectual freedom. A variety of things that we consider to be important for our civil liberties, for example, uh, marriage equality today, 
would have been things that would have been stigmatized just a few decades ago. And the reason that we as a society got to a point where it was possible to talk about it and try to change our norms and rules is because people had the freedom to talk to each other about this privately, find other like-minded people. We had the freedom of association and so on. As we move to a digital world, are we losing those abilities and freedoms? And that is the thing to me uh, that is the key question about this. And that's what to me is the most worrisome thing about online tracking. It's not so much the ads. So you're saying there's a chilling effect, basically, Absolutely as we learn effect. about this stuff. Yes. It's funny because usually when, when I have this kind of conversation with people, they talk about the agency that a lot of folks have. As we learn more about this, we take it into our own hands to protect ourselves. But are you you're not buying that? Uh, certainly we do have the agency as individuals. But I want to think about this as two separate issues, right? How do we – how do I, as an individual, protect myself from security problems in my browser and from my information being tracked? But I think we should have a separate conversation about how do we, as a society, determine mm -hmm. the direction that we're going to take, right? And but the, so the good news is that uh, you know the the societal conversation, of course, is is a heavy one, and uh, we might find as individuals uh, a feeling of how do I, you know. Sure. contribute to this. But the good news is, as individuals, we do have the technical ability to protect ourselves and our web browsers from online tracking. But let me let me keep you at the societal level for sure. a little bit, even sure. though it, are you saying that there needs to be kind of a policy response rather than just an individual, what do I do with my browser response? For sure, much larger changes put in place. And the policy response up until this point has been just hilariously inadequate because our response to this at a policy level has been premised on Let's make sure consumers have notice and choice. Yeah. These are feel-good words that, for the most part, in the real world don't mean anything. What does it mean that I can read some 50-page privacy policy out there and find out, very truthfully, that there are going to be you know, several dozen trackers on, on web pages that I visit, and that is, that is a... Uh, realistic number studies have found including ours yeah we've done a show about that and showing people how you can go to go to a, a site and just see all the trackers that are on any given site but there you go so telling people about it you know is not really solving the problem and yet most of our regulatory response so far has been premised on the idea that if companies uh, disclose in however vague language in their in their uh, privacy policy that this is happening they, um, you know, that that's roughly where their responsibility stops. Uh, the EU has a different approach. They have the uh, cookie law, for example, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I don't even need to explain. Uh, listeners of the show have all probably already experienced the annoyance of the result of that law. These cookie pop-ups that happen all the time when you visit an right. EU website. Again, not clear that they're really solving the problem. So. Instead of having a societal conversation, the policy response has actually tried to frame it as something between an individual and the sites that they visit. So are you like pretty skeptical of the whole um, – what is it? Like those, those terms of service agreements should be much simpler thing, which I know is a big push. I'm uh, sure it helps. It, yeah. You know, it would be better but than – <laughs> still about you as an individual and understanding your gadget or whatever. Exactly. Does this, I guess, bring us back to these third-party – Organizations like you think there just needs to be large scale regulation around this industry. I mean, where do you where do we start? Yes, regulation is certainly a conversation that we need to have. But even before we get there, to even have that conversation meaningfully, what I think needs to happen is there needs to be a much greater degree of transparency about what's going on behind the scenes. And let me read you a quote, actually, if you will, mm -hmm. to illustrate 
how little of that transparency we have right now. This is from a book called Chaos Monkeys, and it's by a former Facebook product manager. It's intended as a bit of, a, of an expose of the whole system. And he says, every time you go to Facebook or ESPN.com or, right, or whatever. You're on brand <laughs> since we're here at ESPN. Right. I didn't put that in. That's, yeah, uh, that's right, the example okay. that he chose to use. Uh, every time you go there, you're unleashing a mad scramble of money, data, and pixels that involves undersea fiber optic cables, the world's best database technologies, and everything that is known about you by greedy strangers. And there are literally dozens of companies talking to each other in the background and doing complicated economics, real-time auctions, to figure out how many cents one company is going to pay another company for the privilege of putting a particular ad in front of your eyes at that very moment. And this is based upon not just the page that it's on, but the history of everything that you've done online that determines how much it's worth in economic terms to show that ad to you at that instant. Right. Right. So it's this fiendish system, uh, fiendishly complex system. And this is this churn <laughs> going on behind your browser, right? Exactly. And it's as complex as anything that happened on Wall Street that led to these systemic problems a few years ago. Uh, but here, it's a similarly complex system that we have no transparency into, no accountability. That's, uh, I claim, leading to these societal problems because of the constant surveillance that's, that's going on. And we need more transparency. So is that, I mean, is Wall Street the best kind of analog here? I mean, that has been the conversation there and has led to congressional hearings and bills and and it being sort of a major legislative priority. Does it feel like it's on that scale of... So here's one reason why Wall Street is a good analogy, and I'm going to explain this to, through another quote. Great. And this is, this is by Jeff Hammerbacher, who's a well-known data scientist. And this is uh, just a, a, a pithy one-liner that's unforgettable that says, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. I've seen that quote right. before. Yes. Right. So the be- best minds a decade ago you know, were, were thinking about uh, various things related to bonds and mortgages, and now they're thinking about how to make people click ads. So there is an enormous amount of intellectual potential and, uh, you know, really research and interesting stuff that's going on. And it's leading to things that is not clear that it's making society better, but there are a lot of arguments that it's making society worse. All right. Well, you've convinced me that, you know, this is a much larger thing that needs much grander scale attention. But nevertheless, I I do want to get your thoughts on, as individuals, what can someone do, particularly with this new world of fingerprinting that you've started to sort of do a census of? Yeah, the browser is a good place to start because it turns out that the browser is technology that's based on open standards and so allows consumers a relatively high degree of customizability and power in affecting their own browsing experience for for the better. Companies might not agree that that's better for it, but uh, uh, but uh, you know consumers might find find it to their benefit. There are browser extensions like Ghostry. Ghostry is one mm-hmm. that we evaluated in our study and we found that it works relatively well at its stated purpose. And we've talked this- to, right, we've talked about Ghostry on this show, but you install it and it basically blocks trackers. Right. right. You install it and you have to configure it. It gives you a variety of different categories of tracking. You want to figure out which ones you're okay with allowing and which ones you want to block. It's not costless. There is a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that a lot of the tracking happens through the Facebook like button and commenting widgets and so on. So what's going to happen is if you want to be really safe against tracking, certain features on the web are going to disappear. But it's more than that. 
what might happen is because there's not a perfect technology to categorize what's tracking and what's not, certain functionality of your of of your favorite websites uh, might might also break. So that's something to be aware. Right, of. and so there. Are, this is the inherent catch twenty two is that a lot of these same techniques are being used to just like make the web a pleasant place, right? And to make it work quickly and to feed you information that you want. And when you go to a news site, it knows who you are and it tells you about your favorite sports teams or about the news you're interested in. Are they just like hopelessly entangled, those two worlds of the advertising and the web experience? What browser extensions like GhostRead try to do is they try to figure out which companies are in the business of tracking and which domains, as they're called, are... Uh, are the domains that serve up these uh, tracking scripts, and they try to block those selectively. And you can do a pretty good job of that. For example, I myself use Ghostry turned to its maximum privacy settings. And, you know, in the course of a day, two or three times I might find that something I want to do doesn't work, and then I might temporarily switch to a different browser or disable it or something like that. Uh, but for me, that personal trade-off is something I'm comfortable with. And you wrote about how... The NSA has sometimes, you know, will will piggyback on advertising cookies and techniques in order to to then gather information. So they are intertwined. Exactly. And that's one type of privacy threat we wouldn't even have known about except for the Snowden leaks. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is there are relatively easy ways of staying on top of what are even the, the privacy threats that should be on my radar, right? Figuring that out. Uh, I follow the Electronic Frontier Foundation on Twitter, for example, and various other uh, privacy and civil liberties organizations that put out information about uh, what consumers should be worried about. Uh, You know, just staying on top of things, on top of these new technological privacy worries that emerge, and using these technical tools that are available. So as we start to wrap up here, I I wonder if, like, you can talk a little bit about... um you know, if you can un unring the bell, like if you've already been fingerprinted and you're just sort of starting to learn about this right now, can you can you ever be anonymous again? <laughs> That's a good question. It depends on what one's goal is, right? If you want total security online and complete protection from anybody tracking any of your online activities, there are a certain fairly extreme measures that you can take to ensure that that would start with using the Tor browser, for example, which is an anonymizing browser, which has a lot of very smart people behind it doing very solid crypto. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a trade-off. You're, you're going to accept a much higher degree of breakage on websites and things not working compared to a simpler solution like using Ghostry and so on. Uh, some of my colleagues at uh, NYU, for example, have worked on a technique called obfuscation, where you use tools in your browser that's going to sort of pollute these online trackers and data mining companies with fake data to confuse them about what your real activities are. That's one approach. It's it's relatively simple to do, but at the same time, its efficacy is not really proven in any sort of rigorous way, but it, it is an interesting approach. At the very least, at a certain level, you're communicating your unhappiness with the uh, surveillance ecosystem to the companies involved by polluting their databases. Um, There are a variety of other things one could think about. Something that I like to do is I like to think about what is the number of different companies who have access to uh, a lot of my intimate data. Mm -hmm. 
for example, I'm comfortable with uh, Gmail being my mail provider. I understand that it comes with risks. And, you know, all of my conversations, not just by email, but also Google Hangouts being stored in this database. Uh, but at the same time, again, there is a trade-off between uh, convenience and security, and I've I've made that trade-off. Now, what what I'm going to do though is I'm going to think very hard about using multiple email providers. Because that, to me, multiplies the risk without necessarily multiplying the benefits or the convenience. So in similar ways, I try to minimize the number of different companies that have access to these intimate dossiers about me. That's, that's one sort of heuristic that I use. Again, you know, there are no scientific studies right. saying that this is a, a good thing to do, but it's something that, that I like to do. So what's, um, what's next for you in your research? Like, um, what's the question you're most excited about, by or what do you want to try and figure out next? One direction we're very interested in looking into, and we've started looking into this, is machine learning, which is a type of AI technology that allows computers to automatically determine, uh, you know, in our instance, it would be to automatically determine what is a tracker and what is an innocuous piece of web functionality. And there's a certain kind of karmic justice in this kind of research because right. there's all of this AI and machine learning and data mining going on behind the scenes to take your personal data and to try to monetize it, right? So we're trying to see, can those same technologies be put to use in ways that are beneficial to consumers to build better tools that can sit in your browser and reshape your online browsing experience in a way that you decide is more beneficial to you. Again, there are ethical questions. Companies are going to complain about whether or not it's okay for consumers to do this. It's a conversation that needs to be had, and I'm happy to to prototype these tools as an academic and and be part of that conversation and see what we collectively decide as a society. And it fits perfectly into where we started, which is just this game of cat and mouse kind of continuing. Um, Thank you for joining us. This has been really interesting. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you. So next time you survey a million sites, you'll come back and see what you say. All right. That sounds good. All right. Cool. Arvind Narayanan is an assistant professor of computer science at Princeton University. He's part of a larger team that surveyed 1 million sites and is doing ongoing research on web tracking. You can find links to his work and links to some of the tools we mentioned on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Lucina Malesio helped produce this episode, and Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. There's a link to download his theme music on our website, 538.com slash podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. A lot of our recent ideas have come from listeners, so be in touch if you want to hear us discuss something. You can subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes, the Google Play Store, or in the new ESPN app. Wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. We'll be right back. 